out there, it's time for another episode of Star Wars All In, the show that goes all in to the people, places, concepts, and things from that galaxy far, far away. I am one of your hosts, Mac, and I'm joined by my fellow co-host, Ross. Mac, it is so great to be here tonight. We have some really incredible topics. I don't know we- if you <laughs> I don't know if you know out there, people listening, our friends, but uh We've had some time where we haven't had to go to work, so we've been around a lot. So yeah. right now, let's see, it's like, what, April 1st, 2020, yeah. and we have been home for a couple of weeks already, so we have had lots and lots of time to record, and we took advantage of it, didn't we, Mac? Yeah, if you listened to the end of our last episode, we kind of broke that, hey, you know, it's it's stuff are going on, there's a reason we're kind of alone, um, which means we have lots of time, so we wanted to give it back to you, so... This is going to be a long one. Yeah, <laughs> I don't, real, I don't, I don't even know how we're going to do it. But, I, but we uh, figured you are probably at home. You probably need some more content. You're probably eating through content like we are. So yeah. we decided to give you an extra special big helping of it. And we've picked some, we picked some meaty top. I think they're reasonable, but they're, they're, they're going to be They're going to be fun. All right. So let, let's talk about what we're going to do tonight. <sighs> so our first topic, we are going to do every single line of Luke Skywalker's. All of his dialogue. Now, let's not get crazy. Only from the original trilogy, though. So only yeah. three films worth. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. That okay. makes sense. No, no, we'll, yeah, we'll we, do we probably sequel t- trilogy dialogue. We'll probably later. tutor it in because I mean, there's yeah. there's a lot of gems. Yeah. Um, now maybe not as much as you'd think though. So stick around to find out because it's well, going to be interesting. Well, I'm excited because I can't wait to unpack some of them. Like, yeah. Like, uh, you know, like Biggs was right. Like and what that means as you watch through the entire oh yeah you know, new yeah hope, when right? Luke's like Ben Ben we're gonna talk about that in depth yeah I mean and, yeah. and think about what that means in context <laughs> exactly, uh, exactly it's gonna be nuts uh but that's not all we are also no. gonna go um I am a huge fan of them it's it I, as most people know I, I'm not too particularly positive on the Marvel comics that are being presented right now so we're going back and I'm going to talk about you want to hear me talk about positive comics we're going to talk about Dark Horse we're going to talk about the Dark Horse run of comic books we're going to as many issues as we can possibly fit in yes exactly all Legends comics yeah we, we are only going to stick to the Legends yeah, comics yeah yeah of course all the Dark Horse Legends comics perfect it's going to be great it's going to be it's going to be great and last but not least Ross you you're going to let me loose, and I'm real excited I about am. It. I basically gave you this one because I know you're going to let me go crazy on the Luke stuff. Uh-huh. So we're going to talk about crew compliments on starships in the Star Wars universe. Basically, the number of crew and their different jobs and positions. Yeah, and we're going to break it down by technicians, officers. Yeah. We're, we're, we're going we're pro- we're to start with the Imperial ones. We may not get much further than that. Yeah, but well, I think we should limit it just to Imperial today. Yeah, and, and just to let you know... Because there's so many, there, there's only a couple hundred. We're we're gonna stick to going through these pretty fast. So it's not gonna be just canon ones, but it's gonna be the important ones. So sure, I'm gonna have sure. like the eclipse class, like interdictors and stuff like that. Yeah. Because I mean, they're not technically back in canon. You know, yeah, it's fine. It's, it's fine. fine. It's gonna be great. It's gonna be great. So prepare for a long one. Strap in. Th- this will be a show, Carol. We're gonna be a couple hours here, and we're. We're so excited. I we're very. I mean, much the Luke one. We, we've been kicking this one around for a while. So I know we've been practicing. It's we got. I have. I've got like a small of book facts. of notes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's gonna be nuts. All right, so stick around for this madness coming up right after this.
So we're back for another topic here at Indie All In. Um, I, I hope no one was offended by that Nazi segment. We, we talked about them being monsters. I know that's a way more sensitive topic in 2020, but I mean, he's just two-fistedly beating up actual straight-up Nazis. They're never shown in a good light, so I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, I think we I think we did it fairly tastefully, don't you? Yeah, you know, I really thought that uh, it's a time and place. I mean, this this bit that we're about to talk about here takes place in 1935. It was a very different world. It's crazy because, like, I didn't know the word prequel until um, uh, 99 when uh, the the first. uh, Oh, yeah. When Star Wars did the the prequel movie, The Phantom Menace. Phantom Menace. Yeah. yeah, So so until Phantom Menace came out, I never really heard the word prequel. But this is this is a prequel. This takes place before Raiders because what we're going to. Sorry, we should say what we're doing. We're going to be talking (laughs) about the opening it's not full act, but like the opening sequence yeah, the opening of bits. Temple of Doom, which if you've been listening to the cast, you know, is not Mac's favorite movie, but this is his favorite part of that movie by far. And it's because it's fantastic. And it we're going to talk is. about why it's fantastic as we go. But yeah, I think that's a good place to start when, you know, if you've been listening to our first season and a half year of Indiana all in that we've been doing uh, it, it. It's interesting because this is the second film released, but it is the first chronologically. Yes. Uh, it, they decided that to avoid having to have Nazis in the sequel, they wanted to have As a we prequel. The last segment. This, yeah. this doesn't have any. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so here we start off in uh, Shanghai, nineteen thirty-five. Right. With this uh, great, just big, giant silver gong. I mean, who doesn't want to start with a giant it's silver so gong? So great because they match cut it to the Paramount logo. Yes. It's such a stupid good thing. Yeah, I love it. I love it. And uh, then we have basically this nice big. Uh, dragon head, all of these really cool, just visually appealing things, especially when it's all practical. I mean, you know, none of this is computer generated. And then finally, we get our opening music number. I mean, what movie doesn't start with a great music number? It's it's so much fun because the one thing I like about it is like, it's essentially at this nightclub, right? Yeah. But there's a certain point during it where you're like, this doesn't all fit back there. <laughs> like, there's like way too. The, the there are more people in the stage show than there are that can fit in the bar. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, they just have fun. And and again, is is great because we we see Willie come out. It's yeah. our first establishment of her, and we're like, oh, what, what is this going to be? And then she's doing anything goes but in Cantonese, <laughs> except for the title of the track. You know, when that comes up in the chorus. And that's mostly yeah. think, either to help us or just because, well, Cantonese just doesn't go with the melody right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think so you're right. I'm going to say something that this has bothered me since the beginning. I don't like this fact you can't see the word of. Yeah, it's She's... blocked by Willie. Now, at first, it's kind of cool because I think it's might be might be Steven Spielberg's credit. I think maybe we see that. Oh, the 
the credits are in the environment. She just put her hand in front of one of them, which yeah. is neat. And then we have the opening, you know, Indiana Jones, which is cool because in Raiders, we don't have anything like that. We just have like block letters that says Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. So we've established that Indiana Jones is a marketing machine. And look at this great logo we're going to use for years. Mm-hmm. But she's standing in front of it and it never passes past her, which I thought would have happened, but it doesn't. It's odd. So technically, as you see in the film, much like it is not Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark as filmed. It's just Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is technically Indiana uh, Jones and the Temple Doom. You know, I mean, yeah. if you look at the title, that's what movie we're watching. Yeah, it is. I mean, based on what we see on screen, 100%. But we have just all these people in it's sequence. probably close to what your ticket stub would have said, too. Because they have to <laughs> abbreviate to fit that. Right. With right? a big asterisk on it. Because check ID. This is a PG-13 movie. Well, actually, I take that back. I don't think this isn't. We talked about this before. I, I can't remember what we did. It. It wasn't PG-13, but post-actively it was PG-13. It's when PG-13 one of the movies that caused... Thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the movies that they went, maybe we need it in between. So anyway... So after our great musical number, and it's long. Well, the crazy thing about it is it's such a mishmash. You have all these people in like sequined like Yeah, you have like almost like a hats. chorus line type of thing. And then she's in like a dragon lady like silk mm-hmm, dress mm-hmm. sequined. Uh, yeah. It, it, it's a great East... Mm-hmm. meets west it, it kind of shows i guess something that was uh, something america was just starting to get known for which is exporting culture we mm-hmm. were exporting music mm-hmm. and we were exporting movies and radio and all yeah. this kind of stuff and we can see that even in this dot not dive this this middle club yeah. i mean obviously gangsters hang out there it's not the highest class club in the world um you know, we, we get to see just this exhaustive musical to remember what nightclub culture was like. It's it's great. Mm-hmm. And I do just want to point out one little behind the scenes thing here. The reason we open up in Shanghai, this whole film was originally supposed to take place in China. Oh, I would have so much uh, more enjoyed a, that. A chase along the Great Wall and all kinds of things. But due to shooting where they were allowed to shoot versus not, they decided to just rewrite and only have the opening take place, which... Well, it's great, and we're going to talk about why. Right yeah, China now. was much more culturally a different, and like I said, I I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that she's singing "Anything Goes" in in Cantonese, which probably kind of shows how they were probably not very welcomed by the Chinese government because China wants it to be Mandarin. Yeah, and Cantonese is Hong Kong, you know, where the actual film industry is, which is probably where Steven Spielberg actually filmed any China parts of this. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's interesting. I didn't look that up. I don't know where it was filmed. I think it's, I mean, it's mostly soundstage. I, that I would think be there's some thought. establishing shots, okay. but they don't really, I mean, it's at night and we are mostly in the streets in an airport. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, enter Indy in his hot white tux. Oh, looking he, good. Prime Harrison Ford right here. Oh yeah. It's great. And he's, it's such a great, cause he's wearing the white dinner jacket. So he's, mm-hmm. he's like, Instantly two references. The real reference, which is um, Casablanca, you know, he's walking in just like Rick did with this just cut suit in this beautiful, you know, uh, nightclub. But it also kind of reminds you a little bit, especially because of when this would have been made in the you know 80s. Like, it's also reminding you of James Bond. Like, we're reminded that, like, Harrison Ford is the action f- hero. Like, Indiana Jones is the ultimate expression of the action hero. Yeah, it is. It really does give you those vi- those Bond vibes. A hundred percent. That was exactly the thing well, I was especially thinking. Especially because he comes right up and he has this clandestine meeting. He's like, hey, you better watch yourself. 
as this waiter's so, talking to him, right? Yes, yes, he does. And then as that kind of little fleeting moment passes by, he sits down at the dinner table with Lao Shea, his yeah. business associate. Now, uh, Willie, who Willie Scott, who is our uh, vocalist from the intro, she also plays a big part in this whole plot. She does. This, this opening. She's one of our main characters. Uh, so she comes over to the table as well. So just to set the scene, we have Willie, we have Dr. Jones, we have Lao Shea, and his two henchmen there sitting at the table. One, yeah, his his son, and then he has the, the other one there who's obviously like, the, the the more murderous one. <laughs> um, and, so and we start this deal talk. Yeah, and you don't know what's happening no. because you're picking up at the end of a story that's already been started. Yeah, this I is mean, in media res. This yeah. is the end of a previous adventure. Yeah. So basically, uh, Indy was hired to find the remains of the first emperor of the Manchu dynasty. Yes. That was the the mission. And in turn, Lao Shea was supposed to give him a freaking giant diamond. <laughs> Yes. And so there's this great moment where we have this <laughs> glass lazy Susan in the middle of their yes. table. And, you know, uh, Lao Shea puts on a bag of some gold doubloons, spins it around. Indy goes, no, no, no. This so, isn't what I wanted. This is what we agreed to. You know, spins the table back. They put the diamond down. They hand over the remains of the emperor. And... Uh, and but he also passes a drink. He does. He puts a little, a little glass of champagne there for him. And as the business deal concludes... Indy drinks the champagne and all of a after sudden almost not after almost not. That's true. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's... Uh, and Lao Shea and his henchmen just start to maniacally laugh. There's not enough maniacally laughing in films these days. No. And it's great because so Willie has come over and just to see what's going on. She's just interested because she's sort of like she's just sort of this this piece of scenery Lao Shea likes having around essentially right yeah and she sits down and Lao Shea is just kind of like you know you don't really belong here this is Dr. Joe Jones we have a business arrangement and all this kind of stuff and this is when we know things are getting serious because before the deal starts like Lao Shea puts it over and Jones is like something we agreed to to it's like well that's before for you know you you broke the deal he's like I didn't break the deal you tried to back out of it that's why I cut your son's finger off I let him live out of respect for you you like and they're establishing the fact that like this has already been super dangerous up to this point and that tension at that table is just rising yeah. to the point that he has to pull a butter knife he's he's got a butter knife right at like the kidneys of willie as this threat to try and protect himself as they start like trying to pull guns yeah and yeah. um they get to where they're established one thing i just want to put in that's a fun note is this diamond is just a diamond in the cause of this movie but they establish it later in indie fiction to be even more important because there's a young Indiana Jones movie called The Peacock's Eye where they establish this, like the Cross of Coronado, is something that Indy has already tried to acquire and couldn't. He was trying to acquire it because it's supposed to be one of two diamonds that were in this golden peacock that was owned by Alexander the Great. It's one of his favorite treasures. And as the legend goes, one of the eyes was smuggled to India and was cut up into smaller gems. It just doesn't exist anymore. But, you know, the other one was lost to history. And Indy, when he's like 21, has almost gets it when he's working with this... Uh, his counterpart is he's working as a spy during World War One with this French counterpart. They almost get it, and he basically has to give up on it. It's establishing what he's going, what he's already learned as this young man. He's already had the events of the beginning of Last Crusade happen. Like he knows that I will live to fight another. I will have another shot at it, which 
when you know that makes this scene like watching it when I watched it for the, our show today, like makes it that much more fun because this is personal. It's not just a chunk of rock. It is a it is a artifact. It belongs in a museum. And Jones has already tried to get this. So even though he hasn't got the cross of Coronado back yet, because that won't happen for a couple of years, we kind of get that energy that like doubloons don't count. I want that diamond. It's the only reason I took the job. I got you those ashes. You're going to give me that diamond and nothing else. And he gets the diamond for a brief moment. For a moment. <laughs> Until he realizes during that maniacal laughter, why, why are you laughing? We poisoned you. <laughs> so now you'll give us the diamond and we'll give you the antidote. <laughs> oh. oh. <laughs> so basically, the, and by the way, Lao Shea is also like, kill the girl. I'll get another one, which I just love. He just Because he tries the same trick. Away. He does the butter yeah. knife to her side and he's like, kill her. I don't care. I have the ashes and I'm going to get the diamond. And the worst case scenario is I watch you die. Everybody wins. <laughs> <laughs> and just when Lao Shea thinks he's got it in the bag, Indy has one last saving grace up his sleeve. Because that waiter is a contact and adventure sidekick of Indy's. And he comes up with the, the silver plate and he has a gun underneath he of it. He does. And then all of a sudden, champagne corks start popping and Lao Shea's associate uh, is able to get a shot off in the middle of this crowded restaurant, by the way. A gunshot, I think, would be way louder than a champagne cork. Uh, yes, they were also lower caliber back in the 30s. So I'm not saying that fair. Let's put it this way. As we've said many times, we both accept that Crystal Skull is a good movie. It's fun. And that no, a fridge would not let you survive a nuclear thing. Even if it's lead lined? Even if it's lead lined. And yes, if you were thrown the Miley's throne in the fridge, you would have died. But the point is. That is part of the suspension disbelief of this it, genre. It, it it's very it's, much so. Is. So, like you said, like it's not really yeah. realistic, but it's it realistic enough because yeah. it's very well choreographed. They do a good job of hiding because the gun report is in there. Like the sound yeah. of it going off is in there, but it is in this mix of these champagne corks popping. Yeah, and then we just see the red blossom on his lapel. It, it, yes, and it looks great. And as Indy holds him as he's dying, he's got all these great words of. I get to go first into our next great adventure. He's, you know, I've followed you all and all yours. Now I get to take the lead. Yeah. Yeah. Which is he's such a good optimistic way of looking at it. And, it. and it establishes, you know, he's worked with Indy before. And it also is establishing that whole thing of like with Indiana Jones, how loyal these people are to him. He, he has no regrets about dying this way. He's like, <laughs> it's fine, Jones. I get it. It's fine. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's good. It, yeah. So it's a, it's a way to make it a little bit of a less depressing movie because yeah. it becomes a real depressing we'll get movie there. as it goes. <laughs> yes. Uh, so then after this moment, uh, Indy takes a... <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't even get it out because I love it so much. Indy <laughs> takes <laughs> a steak with <laughs> flaming <laughs> meat on it kebabs, yes. and throws it and impales a man in his chest who then just because this was a guy who shot his friend has his gun and he's just shooting wildly which causes just... pandemonium in the restaurant yeah it's because like it is like i need a distraction and all he sees is yeah the shish kebab this big burning steak and he just he impales him it's like throwing it's a like spear you're one of those steak houses where they you know have the steak the, all the meat on the swords and they come yeah. around and they <laughs> chop it onto your plate it's like one of those i didn't it's know wild. they were doing that in the 30s but man uh, I thought it was great. It must be because he's dead. He got killed by he, that. He's straight up dead for sure. <laughs> you can't survive flaming meat to your chest. 
And this, no of course, way. causes all the ruckus, which causes both the diamond and the and antidote the- <laughs> to be thrown onto the dance floor where where all these people, all these waiters and people are trying to rush to get out of here. And it's becoming chaos. Yes, yes. It, Willie's after the diamond yes. because she's been struck by it. Indy's after the antidote. So, you know, he doesn't die. die. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, essentially, then he gets stuck in the middle of a dance number. Right. As all this craziness is happening. Because anything goes starts up again. Yep. And the dancers don't know what's going on. So they're just coming out doing their dance going, why is everyone running? <laughs> and they're just kicking the, the, the diamond and the, the antidote just get like a shuckle, uh, shuffle puck just get, keeps bounced <laughs> all around the this wax dance floor. It does. And we end up with a bunch of ice on the floor, making it that much harder to spot the diamond. <laughs> I, okay. Pause there for a second. I love Willie's reaction. She's like, ah, oh, shoot. Like she's getting like every near miss is an all shoot. And then she's like, really put out when all the ice just pours over it. Yeah. It's like, what's that? Like a guttural, like, oh. oh. <laughs> Meanwhile, Indy's like, I'm going to die. Let me have the antidote. <laughs> and Lao Shea is maniacally laughing. Like as much as he's mad as henchman's dad, he's like trying to get his son, son to go do something about this. And he's just, you can tell he's like, he's a kingpin. He's like, I'm not going to handle this personally. I have people for that. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I love here in this next moment when Indy, there's that guy who's like throwing stuff at him. He gets the symbol from the drum set. And, and just whips it at the guy like a and boomerang. And it hits on cue. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, that would mess you up. Those things are sharp and heavy and... They, they're brutal. Yeah, that would not be a pleasant... Uh, oh, boy. So you're saying fridges don't make sense, but this does. I mean, it could happen. Huh. You know, I never really thought about it, but yeah, now, now I, I think about it. I, I You've uh, been around drummers and drums more than I have, but like... <laughs> Like, yeah, I mean, the few times I've been around them, yeah, they, they are surprisingly heavy. Yeah, they've got a weight to them for sure. Okay, so this is one of the best parts where uh, basically Indy now has to hide behind that giant gong because he's being shot at with a machine gun. Because Lau's son has shown up with a Tommy gun. Yes. And speed of maniacal laughter. And he's shooting at like a psychopath. Everybody's laughing in this movie. There's lots of laughing and lots of screaming. That's the <laughs> yes. way I would define Temple of Doom. It's in an international language that everyone understands. <laughs> it must be. So Indy hides behind the gong as it's getting blown away by this gun. And then he goes and he grabs a giant ceremonial sword and chops the gong off the wall. So it goes rolling through the dining room. He's running behind it. He grabs Willie on his way out. They jump out a window protected by the fire. Yes. Running behind the giant kong and they fall straight down into the carriage driven by short round <laughs> yes no just one thing i just want to say because about the gong is oh yeah i love the fact we've talked many times about this franchise about how well it it uses um the technique of Chekhov's gun we establish something that something will be something later. So, like, we start with the gong, and the gong ends up being surprisingly important. Yeah. It is not just a throwaway. It's the way they get out of this place. We establish that Jones has contacts in, in China, and here's his next one. <laughs> it's this little kid in a Yankees cap driving this this nice, it's a nice 30s convertible. <laughs> as as Joe's like, step on it, short round. <laughs> And Willie's like, how's the kid going to? And then we just see the, the boxes the tied. The box tied to his feet. feet. 
Okie dokie, Dr. Jones. <laughs> and he just starts driving out. And, and that's when we get to see the the one little Easter egg. Uh, you know, we love Indiana Jones, but George Lucas had other films too, which Star Wars. And so we see this is Club Obi-Wan. It's kind of like the Obi-Wan. We mentioned that when we talked about the opening scene of Raiders, how the yeah. plane has Obi-Wan. It's, it's sort of the Indiana Jones Easter egg for the other thing George Lucas did. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so... We see it's Club Obi-Wan. We see Lasu sees them them go. Lasu is like, we got to go after them. And so, you know, get, get the cars. And, and, and a, a 1930s, like, gangster shootout, like, car chase yes. starts. Yes, and I love it. This whole time, Indy is still poisoned, sweating profusely, trying to get the antidote. Finally, he's able to fish it out of Willie's dress, where she's <laughs> hidden it. And she's like, I'm not that kind of girl. <laughs> it's great. And then he's like, hold my gun while he drinks it. And it's hot. So she kind of fumbles it and drops it out the window. <laughs> Such a great so moment. Good. They have great chemistry together. They do. They, they, they do. really, really do. They work so well together because he they is play off. always playing the straight man. Yes. But here he really gets to be like the dad almost too of like showing just extreme disappointment in her. And and right now we're seeing our three main characters for the rest of the film because yeah. Jones and Lily and Short Round are going to be the characters we're going to follow for the rest yes. of the film. And it's great because Short Round's a kid, but he's more used to this life than Willie is. So yeah. there's a certain great like he almost has a kid sister relationship with, with her and they're both yeah. with dad Jones. Like, <laughs> and, right. and, and the other thing that's great is Indy gets the antidote. He gulps it down and we finally get the John Williams sting of the Indiana Jones theme. We finally yeah. go, yes, doc, Dr. Jones is, we're out of the tuxedo. Indy is here. Yes. Indiana is about to go on an adventure. He's about to do some action. Yes. hundred percent. So they finally make it to the airport because they're trying to escape. Yeah, after this shootout, they're going through these credits. It's, it's a fun car chase. Oh, yeah, for sure. But it, it's 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 fairly by the numbers. Yeah, the best moments are what's happening in the car yes. between Indy and Willie in short round, for sure. And so then we get to, uh, you know, we get to the, uh, we get to. The um, airstrip. Yeah. And I, so I'll be honest with you. I don't know if I didn't remember this as a kid, but I keep forgetting that there's a Dan Aykroyd cameo here. <laughs> there is. There is. Tell us about it. Isn't that wild? Yeah. Because, yeah. okay, so they get to the airstrip and we can tell the airstrip is, um, it sounds, I don't know if it's British government. Like, I don't know if it's a military base or whether it's just civilian and Dan Aykroyd just happens to work for the British. But like he comes up and Dan Aykroyd in a British accent, which is fun, uh, is basically just telling, you know, Dr. Jones, uh, we had to pull some strings, but we were able to get you, you know, onto the plane. It's like, oh, that's great. And then they go through the fence and we can kind of tell that the fence is, I I, I get the feeling it's international borders. There's Mm -hmm. some reason that we as an audience believe that when Lao Shi shows up, he can't go through that. Right. Yeah. And they go over and, uh, okay, this is where I, again, just like we talked about the pontoon plane in Raiders, like this is where I get to be a nerd about aviation, just like the Zeppelin episode in last crusade. I, I am a aspiring and budding pilot. My family business is built around aviation. So I love planes and stuff. And this is one of the few vintage planes I can say I've ridden. Really? This is a Ford Trimotor, which was made, I think, originally in 28. I think it was when they first made it manufactured. And there was only like 190 of them made. It was basically Ford just seeing if they could make planes. And they made one. And it was legendary for kind of being like over-designed. Like it doesn't really need, for the for the time, it doesn't really need three engines. Mm-hmm. 
but it did make it so that that thing had a lot more oomph than a lot. And it ended up in a lot of like mail carriers or like this as cargo transport and stuff like that, especially when these would be sold like in the thirties start being sold on like secondary markets yeah. to like Shanghai and stuff. And it is a beautiful plane. And um, there was one that came around this area and was doing rides. It's one of, I think only 20 or so that are still like complete. Wow. And it was only one of like, a handful that are still flying. Yeah. Uh, and it's crazy because you, you you get into it and it's at an incline because it's a tail dragger. Yeah. And then it, you know, writes itself. And that thing is so loud because those three engines are loud. Yeah. I and sound it. insulation barely existed in the 30s. So that thing is loud and powerful. Wow. But what a crazy cool contraption. And, and such a... Um, Again, the attention to detail we've talked about in this franchise of trying to get things um, iconic. It's not trying to be historically accurate so much as it's trying to be iconic. It's reminding you of old movies and stuff like this. You know, it's it's reminding you of all this great stuff. And so, yeah, Indy gets there. He, he gets into the the man door that's on the on um, on the back um, starboard side, and he just looks over at Lao Chi, like kind of gives almost like almost the salute, just like, "Well, Lao Chi, guess you lose or whatever." Yeah, you lose. And Lao Chi's like, "Oh, I am disgraced by this horribleness." And then the door closes, and we see it's his plane, it's his freighting company, and, and then he just, just smiles. <laughs> It's so good. It is. It's a great opening number. I know everybody talks about the opening to Raiders or, you know, the River Phoenix stuff from Last Crusade. But this really is just so fun. And it has the essence of what we love so much about Indiana Jones, I think, and why we have a whole podcast about him. Well, yeah. And, And I mean, I think you see that while Temple of Doom from here out starts going down this weird winding path and ends up being in my opinion, the most awkward stepchild of the franchise because it's horror-based, which is exactly what they wanted to make. But it it becomes a horror movie. And when you get to Last Crusade and it's back to what Raiders and this scene is, which is just this pulpy adventure, Mm -hmm. you got like, no, I I want that from you. That's what I want. And I think that's what turned off so many people from Crystal Skull because it's it's a B-movie science film. It's it's like uh, Temple of Doom in the sense of, you got to understand it's a different genre. Otherwise it will be off putting. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, I did a complete rewatch of Temple oh, of Doom, oh, okay. not just the opening scene for this, uh, because it's one I hadn't watched in its completion in a while for like maybe in the last year I hadn't seen it. So it was, you know, it was, it was really nice to just sit and watch it from beginning to end because I watched the opening. Yeah. And then we had actually delayed our recording for a few days. So yeah. I went back and rewatched it again with my wife. And we were sitting there. We got through the opening. I'm like, I'm just going to keep watching this. And so we sat there together and we watched it together. And she was the one who pointed out to me. She's like, there's a lot of screaming in this. Yes. And I'm like, you know, you're right. All Willie is really ever doing is yelling. And it honestly can get a little grating after a while. Yeah. It, well, it. She's being a scream queen, like, for sure. Like the, like the, I think it's mostly referencing fifty. Like we talked about this a little bit off off mic of like the fact that like obviously this is is going to the dime novels is you know uh, Doc Savage and the Spider and the Shadow. This is the stuff that in Lone Ranger. This is the stuff inspired India. We've talked about that at nauseum. We've had entire episodes about that about the source material this comes from. Um, but this is different in the sense of yes, those dime novels had things like Tales of the Crypt and stuff like that. That that pulpy horror that that really um you know garish horror 
but we didn't really have that in movies. And I think that's one of the other things that makes this feel weird because it's very much referencing fifties horror movies. You know, this is the creature from the black lagoon. This is, is, you know, um, the mummy and, mm-hmm. and stuff that would have been made in the thirties mm-hmm. sort of, but then it's got this real, I mean, that's the reason the PG 13 exists. Is, it's got this real, it's the eighties. So we can show a lot of things in movies. We wouldn't have shown 30 <laughs> years ago. Right. So yeah. there's some real, gross stuff in this movie but it's on purpose this i mean this is why temple of doom is always going to be my least favorite indiana jones boo movie but it's still indie i love all of indie right yeah uh i mean like what well, we talked about you know it's, it's april of 2020 it's the first year and we've we've been talking about how we have to watch a lot of stuff like i'm working through like the young indiana jones chronicles like like all of it and that's why the Peacock's Eye thing was like so fascinating to me when I watched this scene again. You know, I pulled up my Blu-ray and I was watching it and I'm like, oh, wow, th- that diamond has such a different connotation to me. And I should have watched the whole thing because like I, there's a part of me that's like, even though I have like some childhood scarring from the Kaliman scene, which we have talked about ad nauseum <laughs> about how much that screwed me up when I was like six or seven and saw that for the first time. I'm like, that shouldn't happen. And that's so mean. Um, <laughs> I think as an adult, I don't think I'll like it per se more, but I can really appreciate that what Steven Spielberg and his team were doing was they wanted to make a modern horror movie because at this point, Indiana Jones isn't established. Like we know that first scene feels to more like us, Indiana Jones, but we're coming from a world where last crusade was already out. Right. Where like young Indiana Jones Chronicles is following that pulpy kind of like we already have established sort of, I guess, the formula for Jones, yeah. which until last crusade, we didn't realize, Oh, that is the formula for Indiana Jones. Yeah. And again, crystal skull, we go off on a different tangent and same like temple of doom. You get some divisiveness. Yeah. Um, uh, thankfully we're in the Indiana Jones fandom. We have to deal with like other fandoms. We talked about, you know, George Lucas and star Wars and that's, they have to deal with a whole lot more. Oh, than We, do. we yeah. don't have to worry about that. So Indy five, if we have to get all frustrated about things. So that's nice. But I hope that if when we get it in 85, whether it has Chris Pratt or whoever, you well, know, I, you know what? Let's uh, go over to the board and talk about only 466 more days to go till Indy five, yeah. according to Disney. The, well, I think in the current situation, it might be a little further down the road in general, let alone the production woes we've talked about with it. But I do hope that this opening scene and yeah. that tone, is what they embrace. I think that's, I think that's what makes indie feel so unique is the fact that it is this tongue in cheek. Yeah. We know this doesn't exist. You know, that the, the Ark of the covenant isn't a radio to God and no, these spirit stones shouldn't glow in the dark and no, the grail probably shouldn't give immortality, but this is the world we love. If this heightened sense of adventure where this place where all these myths and stuff are real And I I hope that's where we go because there are plenty of more, more historical objects that are super interesting that belong in museums. Yeah, I, I, they do. You're right. All right, Mac, I don't have, I have, you have anything else to say? I'm feeling pretty good. No, I I think, I I think we covered the base. All right. I love it. It's such a great opening. All right. We'll stick around on iJai where after this, we're going to be talking about snakes. Star Wars is for everyone. 
Every day, we have the ability and opportunity to create a more accepting world by actively coming together and living inclusively. Whether it's the galaxy far, far away or right here at home, there's always a chance to do even small things to include other people, let them know that they're loved. Just regardless of the differences we have between us, what makes us in common is far more important. Yeah, Star Wars loves and accepts all. And it's always been about that. And here we are in 2020, Star Wars more inclusive than ever. I can't tell you how many different people from different walks of life, different ability levels, different races, creeds, genders, that were all together at Star Wars Celebration to celebrate the things we love. Sometimes it feels like you're fighting against the Empire when you're trying to champion what's right. But remember, it takes all of us to fight an Empire. So join us and everyone else in the galaxy and learn how you can come together at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Just talked about Lou's Cafe slash Cafe 80 slash that yoga studio. Oh, aerobic studio, yeah. <laughs> uh, so now we're going to go back in time and talk a little bit about the enchantment under the sea dance on this segment of Back to the Future All In. Be there or be square. Be there or be square. And you do not want to be square in 1955. No, no. no. Because in April 1st, 2020, you might not really be familiar with uh, be there or be square, but in the 50s, yeah, square means something yeah. different, kind of like the small boxes we're all living in. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas in, in 1955, it's a little bit different. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. And we're going to talk about all the ways it was different. So we're going to talk today about everything involving the enchantment under the sea dance, that mythical night when the McFly family became whole for the first time. And we're going to talk about all the instances that this is mentioned in the Back to the Future trilogy and all the bits we lot. see of it. It is. So we're going to talk about it. We're going to start. Um, I think the easiest way is just to start with Back to the Future 1, Mac, and let's talk about it from there, okay? So we'll talk about It's always weird when we do this podcast. Yeah. I'd be like, so we're going to do this chronologically. I mean, well, <laughs> like in our timeline, not the one in the... Yes. Yes. So, so we're it's gonna, 1986. It, Back to the Future comes out. How do we first see yes. the enchantment of the sea So dance? we have... Uh, the McFly sitting around their dining room table, right? George right. has just wrecked the car. Uh, there's a lot of tension. Um, you know, Mrs. McFly is basically saying, hey, Uncle Joey's not going to be here. Got to eat this cake alone. Jailbird Joey. <laughs> and basically they get going talking about how 
uh, George was hit with the car, right? And that's mm-hmm. how they fell in love. You know, it was meant to be. It's such a, we've talked about this before, but like, I love the way just the, the, the kids are all like, ah, oh, not again. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Linda's basically like, yes, yes, mom, we know it was the fish under the sea dance. And she goes, no, no, <laughs> no it was the enchantment under the sea dance. Which as a kid, you just go like, ah, oh, I screwed up a detail, which means now they're going to tell me an exhaustive <laughs> detail. That's right. Right. And she goes into, and then of course, she tells the story right it was the night of our first date i'll never forget it remember it was the night of that terrible thunderstorm george which i want to point out we're like 15 minutes into this movie and that's already our second reference to the terrible thunderstorm yeah talk about great foreshadowing i mean back to the future is just so well constructed you know like how everything interlocks is just Mm. so much smarter than it has any right to be it definitely (laughs) does it definitely does now i love how as she's telling this story you know she has kind of the stars in her eyes she's remembering blissfully what it was like to be young and in love this is first time lying lorraine brains mcfly she's rough (laughs) yeah she's not looking so great right uh, she's drinking, she's smoking, you know, all that. Uh, and she's talking about how we had our first kiss on that dance floor. And I just knew I was going to spend the rest of my life at him. And then she looks over as he's cracking <laughs> up at the television, not listening to her at all. It's Crispy Glover's just looking at the honeymooners and the one where, where he's a robot. I just got, ah, ah, and just in that. Crispin Glover made such a disgustingly awful laugh yeah. for George McFly. It's just so, you're just like, oh, honey, your life is a train wreck. <laughs> You ended up with this guy? <laughs> and she does have that kind of look of regret in her eyes. Because she's remembering this great moment. She's like all the promise that that night held for her in her future. Yeah. And she's not unhappy. Like, it's not it's not total, like, regret. But it's definitely like a, it didn't turn out the way I thought it was going to. I can't believe we ended up here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh. Basically, you know, Dave leaves for work and our scene kind of ends. And then we have another mention of the Enchantment Under the Sea Dance. Now, at this point, we're back in 1955. Yeah. Doc and Marty are at the high school trying to, you know, come up with a plan of how to get the parents together. Yeah, because we've established that on the 12th, November 12th, is when the lightning storm is going to happen because Marty has the flyer. And then Doc's just like, cool, just don't do anything. Don't see anyone. Did you do anything? Well, I might have bumped into my parents. Ah. <laughs> okay. This has become a lot more complicated. No, no, but I'm just saying, but that's why we're, that's why we're yeah. at the school is, you know, to establish that, which is why we get to the connection of, right. oh, the under the, the, under right. the sea dance so, is the same night. Yeah. So basically, uh, Marty and George and uh, Lorraine all have that little scene together where yeah. he's trying to introduce them and she's just totally head over heels for him. And then she goes running by with her friends when the bell rings and Doc goes, oh, no, you Calvin know, this is, a dream boat. This Ugh. is this is going worse than I thought. And basically in the background, as Marty and Doc are going back and forth, there's a poster for the dance right behind them, which is great. And so, you know, uh, Doc basically goes to Marty, look, it's this rhythmic ceremonial <laughs> ritual. I'm glad and, you wrote yeah, this. yeah, definitely. Because it's such a great moment. And Marty goes, yeah, they're supposed to go to this. This is where the, and he goes over like this quick, long winded, you know, you know, Just like little long synopsis. Breath, yeah. yeah of what like, happened. This is where they first kiss. This is where they, they fall, fall in love. love. This is, yeah. They're supposed to go to this. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, basically they set the plan. This 
forms the third act of the film, <laughs> see, basically. Act three is established as what we're going to yes, do, which it, is we need to get lightning into the DeLorean and we need to get uh, George McFly <laughs> and Lorraine Baines together. And apparently, I just want to throw out, apparently the Back to the Future novelization sets Ooh. up that tickets to the dance were $1. Oh, now I couldn't find out if that was uh, it's it's believe it or not, the novelization not available digitally and I don't already own it. I know, but you still f- keep finding good nuggets out of it. I hope you I can eventually know. get that eBay auction to work. I know. You've I know. Missed I it a few times. But I, hopefully it'll work. We're going to get a copy for sure. We need that in the archives. OK, so at this point we arrive at the end. Now, this is where we really get, you know, into the dance itself. And I should also point yeah. out. At this point, Marty has agreed to take Lorraine to the dance as part of the plan, but she's the one who yeah, asked him. He's tried everything to try and get George in this. He tried to set George up again, and it didn't work out, and Biff screws it all up yeah. and makes him even sexier to his mom. He tries um, – uh, he, he goes as um, uh, from Vulcan. What was the – he references the one Star Wars character. Oh, Darth Vader he right, talks right. Yeah, about. Yeah, of course, yeah, Darth Vader. Yeah, 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 I, yeah, yeah, I know yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, he's like using that to like scare George into it. Yeah, like he yeah. keeps trying all these different schemes to get George in on it, and it's just not working. So he's convinced George. All right, I'm gonna take Lorraine to the dance. You're gonna come up. You're gonna beat me up. Yeah, I'm gonna make a pass at her. She's not gonna like it, and you're gonna be the hero. You're gonna save the day. Okay, her that's the plan. <laughs> Perfect. And he's like, I don't know. It's like George, my destiny depends on it. <laughs> Dad, dad, daddy-o. Dad, yes. So good. All right. So we, we arrive at the dance, and let's just paint the picture, because this is a elaborate high school dance. Maybe this is what they were like in the 50s, but you've got... They got the... It's a gym, but beyond that, it's better than any high school dance I, I went I to. I mean, <laughs> I, I agree. You got Marvin Berry and the Starliners uh, singing Sweet Nothings up there on the stage. Oh, it's so good. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But, They're and, killing and the, it. The decorations are great because they have that... That feel of the 50s, they all seem like, yeah, they, hey, the Enchantment of the Sea Committee got together and we built a lot of paper mache wonder. Like, yeah, where did they get a King Trident statue? I don't know. Did they make it? I, they might have. But then again, I guess we could also establish, like, so we know it's Hill Valley, California, but they might be near the ocean. This might be a theme that they've had for this high school dance might be the 30th. You know, enchantment under, under the, the sea, sea dance, or and something. every year they get one new piece of yeah. They've decoration for they've it. They've collected this since like uh, the the what, the box socking in the twenties. They've just built a collection <laughs> or something like. But it's nice. It's it's Waste very not, pleasant. Mac. It, oh. It's all shiny and blue. I love it. Uh, you know, and you have that great. You see some characters. You see George kind of dancing by himself. Which Poorly. is just so fantastic. <laughs> yeah, and he's just he's into it. And, you know, one of the things about the set directors we mentioned is is great is. And we've seen this before. We have been in 1985's Hill Valley Gymnasium when uh, the Pinheads get rejected to be the band. And yeah. we're like, well, yeah, I mean, this venue played the Starlighters. You're not them. <laughs> <laughs> well, budgets have gone down. That's true. That's the thing. We can't go outside. We got to hire. We have a talent show for it. <laughs> All right. So uh, as our plot essentially starts to move along here marty and lorraine arrive at the dance marty is basically shocked to find that his mother is not so innocent as she lets on and she is very much uh not against <laughs> well, his advances he's just like like you ever get to a thing where you know you have to do something but when you get there you're not sure you want to do do it and he like turns over and she's like halfway opened with a bottle of liquor and starting to light a cigarette and he's like you smoke too like he's just like <laughs> like 
I'm straight edge compared to you, mom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, everybody who's anybody smokes. And it just establishes when he meets his mom, like his mom has gone on this piety tour. Like she's not well adjusted to who she is. You know, yeah. she's she's drinking. She's got a ex-con as a brother. You know, she's she's a little more messed up. Yeah. And she has made all of her kids think that she's a saint and she's established yeah. that they should be saints too. Yeah, like we established very 19 mid-century things of like, Oh, I don't know if you go out that Jennifer, a girl chasing a boy. And it's like, she's boy crazy. That's very why bad. she hates that because that's who she was. And look what it got her. Yeah. <laughs> look what it got her. Right. Uh, it's so again, so well designed. It is. It really is. Uh, okay. So we go through, uh, basically Biff pulls Marty out of the car thinking, oh, okay, this is going to be the moment. And now all of a sudden we've created the tension that Marty was trying to create by putting Biff in his place. Now George is set up to actually be the hero. And it's, it's a lot more real. Yeah. Because I mean, I mean, Biff is about to commit sexual assault. Like we're implied that this is nothing about this is okay. Even by, by fifties or 85 or 2020 standards, nothing about to happen is okay. Yes. A hundred percent. So Marty gets taken around back, beat up, thrown into the trunk of the starlighters. Yes. And luckily here, they come to his rescue and uh, scare off all of Biff's goons. Unfortunately, it's not a, a it's a Pyrrhic victory. We we hurt a hand. Yeah. Uh, did you write the note? Do you remember which member of the band it is? Is it Marvin? It's Marvin. It's Marvin. Yeah, yeah of course Marvin. it is because he has to make the phone call. Yeah. Duh. Yeah. Marvin has the hurt hand, of course. Yeah. So he breaks his so, hand. He's like, do you know anyone who could play guitar? And uh, then it just cuts to him on stage hitting that first chord. And Marvin's just like, hmm, okay, I guess you can. And they go into some uh, into some beautiful Earth Angel. Well, you get into that in a second because the one other thing is George looks at the oh, time. Oh, of course. Yes, of course. And at this point. He goes out there and he opens the car. Is like, hey, you get your damn dirty hands. Uh, oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then we established, you know, it's Biff. And we, we we've already yeah. talked about that scene in another yeah. episode. Yeah. So, but George again, has his big heroic moment. That's the main him. thing to take away here. Technically so outside of the dance, you know, but still important for the scene. And for our purposes today, escorts the enchanted uh, Lorraine Baines. Onto the dance floor with him. Yes. And, and we're like, okay, everything's established. Everything's fixed. But Marty has stuck to the top of his neck of his guitar in the picture. And it's still fading. <gasps> yeah. Even as he goes through Earth Angel. It's like, we did it. Yeah, why happened? isn't it? Why isn't it happening? Yeah. And then you see there's a guy cutting in at the dance and taking the rain. And George's like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to go fight him. I mean, sure. I just punched the school bully out. But yeah. I have confidence issues still. Well, But what I love about this little moment here, this last little bit of tension before the movie sort of, well, before this scene sort Results, of wraps yeah. up. Yeah. Uh, is that it's showing that this just wasn't a one off. This is right. a change to George's character now. He's a different and person. And we'll see that come to fruition later at the end of the film but it's a really important scene that i think when you're watching it for the first time you might just kind of write off of like okay we're beyond this but no it is showing something important about george's character we're making it stick yeah a hundred percent and basically he saves the day again frees lorraine from that redheaded guy and they have their kiss and marty makes a miraculous recovery Stands up real all of a sudden the song is back to go and uh and Everything is right in the world. Yes, he is no longer translucent. And then Marty basically on the on as a victory lap go, 
goes like, hey, do you have anything that really cooks? <laughs> He's like, yeah, this is an oldie from, well, an oldie where, from where I come from. And just to preface that a little bit, this song in the real world is not released until three years after. Not right. released 58. until 58. So just to point that out, this is still a couple years away, but that's the joke. You have to yeah, know and, that. And you, you have people like Chuck Berry establishing rock and roll. Yeah. You know, like he's one of, one of the people like like Ray Orbison and, and um, Buddy Holly are the people who like make this a genre. Yeah. And we get that because Marty McFly caused that. <laughs> he does. He does. It's his influence, his playing. Now, one thing to point out here is that, uh, you know, the guitar playing and the vocals Mm -hmm. are maybe not performed in the way that you think. So while Marty does learn, uh, while Michael J. Fox does learn, you know, some basics of a guitar and he does Uh play some guitar and all that. Yeah, he he Uh, he does appropriate finger syncing. Yeah, he uh, the song is actually performed and sang by Mark Campbell and the guitar is played by Tim May. So the, for that. the actual like recording I mean, of the audio for the soundtrack and for the, I guess I never thought about that. it. Like I, I guess I didn't expect that Marty was the actual player, but I also didn't yeah. think about. I guess there would have to be someone. Else. That's cool. Yeah, interesting, right? They're, they're both very. They, they do a good job of selling that illusion. They, I mean, yes, definitely, especially the playing element of it. The yeah. singing, I think, even as a little kid, you'd be like, his voice sounds like that. Yeah, but, but it's, the, it's, the it's, playing for sure with the way it's cut and shot. I think from a world where you know, growing up on Disney films, where the singing voice and the the normal voice was different people usually. Yeah. Like, I think I was just used to that, so maybe I didn't notice it as much. That's fair. That's fair. Now we have, as you mentioned, uh, Marvin calling his cousin Chuck. Uh, you know, to tell him about that new sound that he's hearing. Uh, and then we have kind of that that great awkward finish where Marty finishes playing Gets and everyone's kind of looking, looking at him and like, oh, boy, pushed it a little too far. Yeah, yeah. It's great because he does a very good rendition of it. And then at the very end, you can see the 80s coming in you get van halen licks he's doing like power slides on the stage imitating some of the most well-known guitarists from like 10 years you know before him and you just kind of go like maybe you weren't ready for the high school dance in 85 marty you gotta pull back a little bit (laughs) (laughs) stick with the ballads kid yeah all right and then there's one more scene here in the dance before we wrap up basically in the stairwell with george and lorraine and Basically saying, hey, I hope it works out for you, too. And by the way, if you ever have a kid that sets your house on fire, don't go too hard on him. <laughs> Got to get that last little bit in. I love that. I, yeah, because it's great because they're like, huh, okay, what a weird thing to say. But he just did play interesting music. That Calvin Klein's just a weird dude. And why does he want us to call him Marty? Anyway, you know what? Marty's a good name. Yeah. <laughs> we should not name our first child. Maybe our second child. Maybe our, no, third. He's He's the youngest, right? He is the youngest. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Dave, 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 Dave and Linda. Yeah, yeah. yeah and we'll sure. name our third kid, Marty. <laughs> That's the right way to go, I think. Well, Dave might be, you know, George's dad or something like that. Right, right. The family a... family names yeah. out of the way. Now they're down to like, I don't know what. What would we do? Well, how about Marty? Oh, that's a nice name. Yeah, remember the yeah. there was a that guy. He was only in high school for like a week. What was his name? <laughs> it, it was Marty. I thought it was Calvin. I don't remember now. Uh, yeah. Weird. 30 <laughs> years changes a man. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Now, I'd like to say that we're done with the Enchantment Under the Sea dance. But we're not. We're not because we get to go back there just a few years later in the sequel, Back to the Future Part 2. <laughs> and I, I love, you know, 
Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis do such a great job because, I mean, you can hear Zemeckis when he talks in the commentaries of, like, this is what he wanted to make Back to the Future Part 2 for. Not the future stuff that you and I grew up loving. Yeah. Not not the dark future stuff. That's fun. But like, I think that's more Bob Gale having fun with that. But he wanted to do, we can go back into our own movie. The, the tricky part. He wanted to do the hard part. Because I think it was just so exciting because what other movie has had a premise to allow that before Back to the Future Part 2? Yeah. Right? We, we've seen this since. Other yeah. movies play with this. But it's so good. <laughs> it is. It is. And... Well, let's let's talk about it here because it's a totally different premise of why we're there. Yeah. Right. So this time, if you don't know, I mean, I, I assume if you're listening to this show, I'd you hope. know, you, we're a couple seasons in at this point. I would think, you know, you would have seen all three. I mean, there's only three Back to the Future films. It's not like some and of those. We've talked other, a lot about them. Yeah. It's not like those <laughs> other franchises where like they have nine, 10, 11 movies or, you know, years, decades of TV shows. We got three, a smattering of a TV show, a, a video game sort of, sort some of comic books. Yeah. And that's it. Back to yeah. the Future. Yeah, it's not, it's not one of the nice thing about Back to the Future. Much. It's finished. It's not always in motion. Yeah, it's I don't finished. think we're getting any more anytime soon. And so if we, if we do, we'll probably protest. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so Marty has gone into the future, and now something really bad has happened. Old yeah. Biff has stolen this sports almanac that essentially allows young Biff to cheat at gambling, and they've changed one possible line of the future. So now Marty must go back to stop young Biff from getting the sports almanac and being able to cheat his way into a rich yeah. future. Yeah. So basically, um. Marty hides in the back of Biff's car and they end up at the school dance. Well, there's this whole great little bit that happens where basically Biff has the almanac with him, but he's also got a copy of Ooh La La. This, yeah. uh, shall we say, Penhouse scandalous forums. magazine. Yeah, a 50s era yeah. you know, dirty uh, mag. So there, Marty follows him. He tries to get the book, but he keeps getting his hopes dashed as Biff and he turns gets, around and grabs it. And he has this whole plan on how he's going to do it, and he loses all of his time when he gets locked in the garage. And he's locked in there until Biff goes to the dance. Uh, yeah. So basically, as Marty is arriving at the dance and Biff is... With the magazine, he's over there with his buddy spiking the punch. Strickland yeah. comes over, realizes he's doing something wrong. Biff follows, goes outside. Marty follows him. And as Marty is about to grab the almanac, Strickland comes out, confiscates the magazine. Or so Marty thinks. Well, he takes the almanac. Yeah. There's a great... So the best part about this is all we're doing is nuancing everything we've seen. Yep. So we're establishing why Biff... Biff is, to be blunt... We've established Biff is a bad person, but not a completely irredeemable monster. He becomes a nice, you know, car detailer in the future. So we're establishing he's stinking drunk. Like Strickland <laughs> mentions, I can smell the booze on you. Like, so we've established that Biff's like all the way over. Like he's, he's very out there, yeah. which explains why he's so aggressive yeah. and such a monster. And yeah, yeah. He's like, like, oh Sports statistics, interesting subject <laughs> as he's slipping through the pages, which has that great nuance of when we realize that, oh, it's not the sports almanac. Yeah. Um, And Marty's off the scent because he goes and follows Strickland to his office trying to get the book there. And then when he finally gets the bo book, ooh la la, ooh la la, <laughs> as he realizes this is. This isn't it. It just has its dust cover. He was just hiding the dirty mag. He's still got the almanac with him. And then this great. He could be anywhere by now. I have no idea where he is. And then right out the window, <laughs> we have the scene playing out. Yeah. Out. I, my, 
dad's about to knock Biff out me in the and no like it's just so great when he's talking to Doc about the confusion of the timeline here. But they're doing such a good job of we know Back to the Future, even as just a casual audience, those scenes were so well done. It's easiest to know where in part one's yeah. timeline we are. Yeah, totally. Because even though they add some stuff, I like there's the, the part where he's sneaking past his car and, the, you know, <laughs> like you smoke too. And then there's the part part where, where it's like, yeah, when I have kids, I'm, I'm going to let them do whatever they want. I wish I could get that in writing. Yeah, me too. <laughs> It's just a chance for them to add these little bit of extra things that just make it feel like you're seeing the same thing the same but different in yeah. a way that works. And it really is expertly done, even especially for a sequel. Because everything, when you watch one, everything that they do that's new is off camera. It all makes sense. You didn't see it in the first movie, even though it was happening. Because yeah. this is all the same part of the same timeline, so everything yeah. that we see happen is happened. Yeah. Now, uh, basically, as Biff gets knocked out, Marty comes over, takes the almanac, hits him again to knock him out again as he starts to stir. And there's another guy there going, "I think he stole his wallet." I think Did you guys steal his wallet. <laughs> I think he stole his wallet. It happens like four times. I'm over glad the that's stuck in your minutes. brain too. Yeah. Like that's it's such a great little forever. line. Yeah. I think he stole his wallet. <laughs> So as he goes into the dance, he rolls under the table to hide from Biff's goons. Yeah. And they come in, and since they don't see uh, undercover Marty, they see Marty up on the stage and go, Hey, he, how did she just close so fast? <laughs> but it makes sense, right? Really quick at tying a tie. <laughs> yeah. Close so fast. So they basically go and wait to jump him. And I love this. Biff's goons are standing on the side of the stage watching him. One picks up like a lead pipe. They're the other one kill him. Pucks up like a winch attached to a rope. Like these are serious weapons. Well, it's and it and it makes sense. You assume A, they're just as drunk as Biff is. Yeah. So they're again inebriated idiots. Yeah. And then on top of it, like, they knocked out he knocked out Biff. That's our gang leader. Yeah. Like we don't and did 300 bucks damage to his car, which in 1955, so as a lot of teenagers, the, the way I would see this end in a different way would be like, they're using these things to be intimidating, but when they start hitting him, it's going to be like an accidental death. Like they want to beat him up and then they kill him because they're so stupid. They're using deadly weapons yeah, on him. Yeah, totally. Now I wonder how long it would have taken Strickland to stop them. I don't know, man. He's pretty good. He's this, he's the grandson of a sheriff. I mean, that's true. I'm sorry, son of a sheriff. I keep forgetting the timeline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so here's Slackers. what here's what happens. Basically, Marty realizes. Sorry, undercover Marty realizes yeah. what's about to happen to 1950s Marty, and basically climbs across some scaffolding <laughs> and drops a giant thing of sandbags on Biff's goons <laughs> that I'm pretty sure would break necks. Well, Marty is is equaling their violence level, leading yeah. to perhaps accidental deaths. Um, like, that could kill you, I'm pretty sure. Well, especially in the 50s, they would have probably been genuine sandbags full of sand. Yeah. Like, now, counterweights would probably be safer, but I, I don't know. I mean, you could also say, hey, maybe it's not an actual counterweight, because there's like a handful of sandbags all oh, attached there's together. Oh, a lot, yeah. So that might be more of a prop for the school musical or something. It may not be as heavy, but you drop something of... You drop a thirty pound something on someone from that height, they're gonna get they're gonna get bopped out. Yeah, totally. Um, and <laughs> I should mention one of the other things I always really love again is they're establishing it. So Marty's looking at Marty, going like, "They're gonna jump me. Well, get out of there. No, not me, me, me. other not me. me on the stage, me." 
<laughs> the one who's about to play Johnny be good. And uh, then, you know, Marty just is going up that ladder yeah. right as Marvin Barry goes past, and we see him make the call. Yeah, we do. We do. Uh, and then eventually Marty swings down on the rope, and he has one final little moment where he goes outside. You know, he hits them again with the sandbags. Got to get that second hit in, make sure they're out for good. And he goes down the same steps that we see Marty go down in the first film, At the just end. like a yeah. second before, basically. Yeah, and he gets out there, and he's outside the door, and... Biff has become conscious again. <laughs> yes, he's looking through the window, seeing that last scene uh, where they're strategically uh, hiding Crispin Glover's face because it's no longer Crispin Glover playing George. But again, not in a way that feels nope. cheated. Nope, not at all. But it's fun to see those little moments. Yes. And uh, basically, as you know, you have this real close up on Marty's face looking through this little window. Biff's face comes in from the other side of the screen and it's this great, perfect shot of them doing like almost a face off. Yeah, you know, yeah. uh, and Biff's like, let's do this. Me and you. No more tricks. Just a straight up fight. And Marty's like, nah. <laughs> And as he begins to walk away, there's the classic uh-huh. Biff calling him chicken. And right as they're about to fight, the door Marty, opens. Yeah, Marty turns around. He's like, nobody calls me. And he's got his finger up. And he, he can tell that this is obviously what they've established for the second half of the franchise of this is Marty's journey is to yeah. get over his pride. Yeah. <laughs> Because yeah. he's like, like nobody calls me. And then the door swings open and he knocks himself out. <laughs> it's so good. It is. It is good. It's the perfect way to end it. Because like Biff backs up enough that we can understand that like now Marty like, oh, did I hit? oh, oh, I got to get I got to get to the get to, you know, the experiment now. So there's an excuse for current Marty. Marty gets hit by a door and at some level, either right then in that instant, because the timeline changes or he sort of remembers, oh, yeah, I did hit some guy on my way out, out from the dance. I should have looked into that, but I was really flustered and he needed was to, in a I was hurry. already running late to the thing I can't miss. Right. And meanwhile, that Marty's still worried about Doc dying. Right. right? He's still got that preemptive in his head. So he so he's it makes sense. Yeah. But it's, it's so great that Marty knocks yeah. himself out. Yeah. Man, time travel's a hell of a thing, Mac. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, do you have anything else you'd like to add to our Enchantment Under the Sea dance topic? Well, I mean, I think the only thing I, I want to add is uh, just how great the music is. It, it's such a great yeah. um, time and place. Yeah. Um, Like, I mean, especially like, you know, Earth Angel, you know, you, you've got a, a Buddy Holly song playing. You you know, you get to a Chuck Berry song. You you have at the beginning, um, um, ha. I th- uh, what night train night train so yes you're, that's you're the, only, the first song you hear yeah you're not only just getting like the rock and roll that we're used to thinking when we think about the 50s you also have like a standard yes you know just an instrumental standard like this is probably what when they hired the band they expected mm-hmm. them to play not all that new music and there's some real crazy dancing going on at this dance by the way these kids are going hard well, that's because back then people knew how to dance it was a normal with a rhythmic mating R- ritual rhythmic ceremonial <laughs> ritual yeah exactly um so yeah you can stop it's i mean rhythmic. these are professional choreographed dancers so they're going maybe a little far because there's the, some of those girls are being tossed around yeah. and those skirts are flailing at a level where i'm like well hey that's way too impressive those dudes have way more upper body strength and yeah. poise than you'd expect yeah and b with those skirts flying as much as they are if you're in the right angle well that'd be inappropriate yeah strickland is not letting that happen that's my main concern well it's probably because he's busy 
Though, of course, he's busy, like, having his ears protected because at that point he's already, <laughs> already like, looked at Marty McFly after he's played Johnny B. Good going like, what was that? What are you? A slacker? <laughs> uh, yes. So good. Yes. Man, just a great moment. I mean, the crux of the first movie and the second. Uh, it is yeah. just... And again, even yeah. in a weird way, I love the fact that we're using repetition because while we do not have another Enchantment of the Sea dance in three, unfortunately, we not, no. do have the dance. We have yeah. the Hill Valley Courthouse Celebration yeah. dance with ZZ Top. And, and you see some of that stuff play out. There's yeah. a tannin and he has an altercation. And, yeah. and we have some of those same beats playing off. Yeah. Um, George and... Um, Lorraine, you fall in love at the Enchantment of the Sea dance. Doc realizes he's full tilt in love with Clara in the dance yes. scene. Like we are repeating those motifs over yes. and over again, but 100%. they all start with this. Yeah, they do. Wow. Beautiful. I'm so glad we finally got around to doing this topic. It was a great one. Yeah. I'm glad we're doing these. I guess it's not really a scene breakdown, but these like, you know, these yeah, um, way arcs, if yeah, you will. Yeah, it is. It um, is. It's a lot of fun. And, and let us know on social media if you like this, because mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't mind doing more of the. I mean, there's only so many more of these, but yeah. um, I wouldn't mind doing more of these if you guys like this. Um, but uh, yeah, you ready to go to the next stop? Yeah, perfect. Stick around. We're talking about hoverboards right after this. <laughs> So welcome back to Star Trek All In. We just covered Tribbles in our last segment, and that was a lot of fun. And now we're going to yeah. do our episode review. We do an episode review every episode. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And today we're going to do a doozy. I'm really excited about this one. This is Season 2, Episode 9 of Star Trek The Next Generation, The Measure of a Man. Mm, and this very is the... excited to talk about this today. Yeah, I was just saying, this is one of your favorite episodes, right? It is, it is. I would say maybe it's my favorite episode, actually. I, you know, I know for me, it's one of the most watched episodes. Would you say this is the most watched episode of Star Trek? You've oh, ever definitely seen? of the next generation see, see, for that. sure. Yeah. Yeah. At least of TNG. Um, I would say that realistically, this has got to be one of the fan favorites too. Now I did do a little bit of digging on IMDb. This is the fifth highest rated episode of that particular run of the show. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. it's definitely up there. Um, but for me, there's just something about it because it's this great little story that just hits 
so many big notes, but of course we'll talk well, about yeah, it. Let's yeah, dive in. This, this thing hits over like all the notes you think of when you think of Star Trek, especially in the next generation era, because you've got, got a, a trial. We're going through a morally ambiguous territory and Picard is philosophizing about the moral implications of it. When you see his beliefs change throughout it, which is great too, because so often when you're portraying a debate in something, you basically have two sides that are unwavering, but just like you have in such classics like 12 Angry Men or, you know, anything like that, you mm -hmm. see opinions shift and change, which obviously is what you want to see in a movie. And, that, and that's when this this show is firing all cylinders. Yeah. You know, this is this is showing the Picard era, yeah. you know, where it's a much more thinking man's. Uh, it's much more the the cerebral. So okay, let, yeah. let's, let's let's break do it. this down. So take us home. We start with um, you know, the beginning of, of this episode starts with act 1 and we kind of see um, an interesting scene. We are in space dock. We're not sure exactly where. It might be Earth space dock, but it turns out to be a far more uh, out there one. And Picard is kind of just lounging, and we see the Enterprise being repaired out there. And uh, then he notices a woman across the way, and he realizes this is old flame. And uh, they kind of uh, come together, and, and they're 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 talking. Oh wait, wait! Before I start, I forgot. Right before this, we saw the poker game. I'm sorry. It starts with the poker game, doesn't it? I think it does. Yeah. Oh, I should have taken better notes. Anyway, okay. Look. All right, I'll finish that scene, and then we'll go back to the poker game. I'm sorry. I'm just very excited. This is good. <laughs> um, so we uh, see Picard has uh, seen this woman across the way. He goes up to her and starts this conversation with him. And we have this fun sort of like – it's definitely familiar. She is uh, kind of explaining that she's uh, been stationed here to set up the JAG office. So she's like like a judge or, or a lawyer. Again, they don't really get into how law works in this episode about about that stuff. But Felipe is um, she's um, she's obviously got history with Picard. And then we sort of get the idea like she drops the bomb of like, well, I had to during the Stargazer trial. And we're like, oh. <gasps> Oh, that's when Picard had his court-martial under his first command. Oh, mm -hmm. this they have history. Yeah, and even if you don't know going in what their history is, they explain it to you here, which is great. You know, they give you just enough threads to follow, but you don't need all the details because it's implied. Just like in that other Star franchise, Star Wars, you know, when Obi-Wan mm -hmm. is talking about, uh, you know, oh, the Clone Wars and all of these different things, we don't need to know what that is. We just need to know there's that history just, there to frame it a little bit. Right. We don't need all the details. Just enough. Like like when yeah. we introduced the neutral zone, you don't really know what that is until many, many properties later, but we, we eventually figure that out, right? Yeah, makes sense. Um, and, and so, yeah. So, again, I mean, obviously, you all know about the Stargazer, but, you know, if, if you had never seen this, this is, it's, it's, again, showing just how well-crafted this show is. Yeah, for sure. All right, so we're going to backpedal because I... Now I'm confused. I don't remember if the poker scene comes before or after, but yeah. it is all. So you're before talking about the, the scene when Data is basically learning about bluffing, right? And human emotion. You got Doctor Pulowski, you got Chief O'Brien, you got got Data and Jordy, and they're all playing poker. And I think, if I remember correctly, I think this is one of the first poker scenes. We we get this motif a lot, but this is great because we're learning, you know, Data's learning the game. And I think because they explain poker in this and how it's about bluffing because Data's like, well, it's a simple game of chance. I'm a computer. I already know what the cards are. And it's like, oh, do you? <laughs> and they go through bluffing and Riker just owns Data. He just pushes him almost to the way of all in. And Data like, I... I guess since it's you and me, Commander, and I look at the cards and know the statistics, I I will fold. Great. But you had no cards. 
no, I didn't. <laughs> Rakes in all the chips. And Jordy's just like, like Data, it's, you know, it's more than just the statistics. And Data's like, confounding. <laughs> yeah, he has that confused look on his face because Data doesn't show a ton of emotion. I mean, that's part of his that's thing. His thing. He yeah. doesn't have them, right? Yeah. But you can still see it there a little bit if he just is not processing. You've got that gap. And that's what we're going to explore in this episode. Because once we come back from the intro, we uh, we kind of get introduced to um, Maddox. So an interesting thing about this show and the context we're watching it in is, you know, it's April 1st, 2020 when we're recording this. And Picard has just wrapped up. And I'll be honest, I haven't watched the last two episodes yet. But um, CBS All Access is giving a month three. So maybe I'll get to that. <laughs> um, but Picard, you know... Uh, if you haven't watched, of course, you're all watching it. When I'm, like, if you haven't watched it, you're all watching it. Of course, it's the new Star Trek thing. Um, it's all about AI. It's about Data and his legacy. We get into, like, every bit of that. You know, Lore comes back and Lowell comes back. And we're talking about, like, what if Data could be cloned, essentially, through, like, a neural net being generated from one neuron. It's, like, it's an insane thing that they're doing. And it's all talking about the central conflict, which is how the Federation has essentially banned types of AI, especially androids, and how Picard is not okay with that. And it references right back to this episode, especially because in Picard we go to where... Uh, Bruce Maddox is from. He's from the Daystrom Institute, which is this advanced learning center for AI. And we see the Datum Institute in Picard, and it's amazing. And we, uh, I don't want to spoil anything, but we eventually, Maddox comes back into the picture. He's been missing for years after his research was essentially made illegal. Um, and we kind of find out what, what he's been up to. But here we see him as a much younger man. We see uh, um, him coming in with all this spunk, and you can kind of see the contrast starting, right? This is a guy who's very methodical. He's someone who's very robotic. He's, he's, he's a procedural kind of human being. And Felipe is kind of like, she's responding to that because she's an advocate general. She's a judge. So when she's like, oh, well, he wanted to meet with you because he has an order for you. Yes, Dita, you're going to be transferred to my department so I can take you apart. And Picard's like, <gasps> I'm sorry, what? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, you can almost hear the Earl Grey tea being dropped in the room because Picard's like, what are you talking about? And Data's like, I don't particularly want that. Like, that's it. Like, because he has no emotions. He's like, hmm, interesting hypothesis, but I don't think your data is good enough for you to try that experiment. Yeah. And kind of grills him. And and it's this fun little scene where, where Data's like reminding him, like, I'm the leading expert on me, not you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and And what I love about the next generation and the way it treats the future is even though it's explaining to us, the audience in the 20 or 21st century, what's going on in the 24th century, you can kind of see this assumption of positive intent. They're like, Oh, you want to take him apart and examine him? Um, Dana, what do you feel about that? Intriguing hypothesis. Oh, well, I mean, if you're cool with it, I mean, you're a robot. I'm assuming you can put you back together. Doctor, can you put me back together? Well, eh, <laughs> I, I got some theories. <laughs> I don't trust your theories, Doctor. Perhaps if you keep working and publishing, I will eventually yeah. be comfortable with that procedure. Yeah, about that. You're going to get transferred to me whether you like it or not. So show up in my office at 0500 hours. And then we get into, like, them assuming this is not horrible yet. Like, assuming that this is like, this is like asking someone to go through a surgery, Right. 
But as we start pulling it together, it starts being that, no, Data's not going to survive this. And Maddox doesn't care. Yeah. It's it's more of an autopsy. Yeah, exactly. That's how I took it anyway, is, you know, they're, they're going to take him apart. And while they're like, well, there's a chance we can put you back together, it's probably pretty unlikely. So we go back and eventually get to to the ready room. And Picard at this point is kind of like talking data through like, well, I have no way to countermand that order. Maybe you should go through it. I mean, if he's got the theory, then you should be fine. And then data just kind of just nails it to the wall where he's like, like captain, are Jordy's visors, not more superior to human eyes. Well, yes. Then why are not all Starfleet officers, you know, asked to get cybernetic implants? Well, Data, that's it's morally confounding. I, um, because it would be immoral. I also think that this is immoral. Well, crap. <laughs> and you see Picard's, like you said, yeah. you see that shift where he's starting to churn through this going like, huh, it is like, it is like a surgery. I wouldn't order someone to get a volunteer surgery. That would be immoral. So why was I okay with this? And so then he starts looking up. He does the work. He starts pulling up all the books and all the data the computer can give him about like this concept. And um, when it all comes down to it, he's like, he can't really figure a way out of it. And data comes to his own conclusion which, you know, he's packing his stuff up and Maddox comes in and he just walks into the room and he's like referring to data as it and thing. And it's basically just like, oh, why are you packing things? Why do you have any sentimentality at all? I'm a robot. I don't, <laughs> you know, you can kind of get that impression. And he's like, oh, art, that's weird. You shouldn't <laughs> like art thing. And data's like, well, these things are important to me and I don't care if you understand that or not. Um, I'm not coming to do your procedure. Well, you have been ordered to. I have resigned Starfleet. You can no longer command me. Well, that you can't resign from Starfleet. I won already. I don't what. <laughs> and so off camera, he runs off and he's talking to um, Philippa and Picard kind of comes into this and he's like, listen, I've been looking at the books and we can't do this. And he's explaining like his moral implications of it. And she's like, well, it doesn't really matter because Maddox got here before you and he's already made made an argument that I can't ignore. And Picard's like, well, what's that? Well, the argument is that Data isn't a person. He's property. And Picard's like, well, Maddox was the only one who wouldn't let Data in the Academy. I thought we already settled that. No, no, we we settled he could go to Academy. We didn't establish his personhood. He is equipment. He is owned by the Federation, which is dark. Yeah. It's a really interesting take because it ends up, coming back, of course, in the conclusion, which we'll talk about in a moment, but yeah. it is really interesting because already the audience is being asked to take a side. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. right from the beginning, there are all these moments where things essentially look like they're leveling out, looks like Data's reached the solution, right, of, I don't want to go, so I don't have to go. Oh, no, I'm right. being forced to go. Okay, I can resign from Starfleet. Oh, no, you can't resign from Starfleet. You're Starfleet property. And every time he thinks he's kind of found his out and it's a bigger sacrifice for Data, mm -hmm. he realizes, oh, no, I still have one hand tied to this. I cannot go any farther. And he's not emotional. So he's looking at it as this procedural thing of I made a chess move and now you made a counter move and eventually I'm in check. 
Yeah. Because uh, the thing we kind of get to is at this point, Data's ready to submit. He's like, I have no legal option, Captain. And Picard's like, damn it, no. (laughs) (laughs) So what does Picard do? He starts, he's like, we... I demand we figure this out. He is a person and I will prove it. It's like, oh, okay, well, you are the flag officer of your ship. And and since I have no, this is office is just getting started. It's just me. I can't obviously be the prosecution and the defense and the judge. So I'll be the judge. You can be, you know, the, the defense. And that means that your second in command, Will Riker, will have to be the prosecutor. <laughs> And this is a twist I didn't see coming the first time I saw this episode. It's good, right? It really is. Yeah, forcing not only your your most trusted advisor to mm-hmm. go against you, but someone who legitimately feels like he's on your side. Well, he but, says, like, Data's my friend. Yeah. I just bluffed him out of a bunch of chips at the poker table. I love that guy. <laughs> he's an easy pigeon, like Miles <laughs> said. Um, You know, like, he defends that, and then she just puts the hammer down she's like well if you don't then he summarily then the defense will summarily rest there is no trial if we cannot have an adversarial system and Picard's like well Will I mean you kind of gotta yeah yeah <laughs> and Will's like okay I'll, I'll do it and then Philippe is just like and you better do it for realsies <laughs> yeah she lets him know that hey if I have to find you in contempt if you're not doing your due diligence and doing your job there's going to be hell to pay. It, and and just, again, so the stakes are set. We have two people that neither one of them want to be in this situation. Picard mm-hmm. doesn't think this is a matter that needs debated. Yeah. Um, you've got Riker, who is in this super awkward position to be on the other side of Picard. Yeah. And he's also a man of integrity. So he's like, I have to do this for real. I have to basically devalue my friend as a person. And we see him later kind of doing his research down in engineering and he finds out something on the schematics that is intriguing to him. And he's like, he's got this great like, gotcha. I know how to win this. I know how to win this case. I feel horrible inside. Yeah. What a crappy thing to ask someone to do, too. Well, right. But like, but again, I think they set it up in, you know, this is a world of law and order. And so even though it's awkward and not not fun like you know they've inherited you know the american british kind of system of this adversarial justice where you always have a defense and you always have a prosecution and it doesn't matter if the facts are damning or not you all everyone deserves a defense yeah. and everyone deserves to be prosecuted yeah um so let's yeah let's just get, let's into, get the into the trial, trial cuz this is about halfway through the episode now i would say yeah and we're going to spend you know all of our time going through what the show's title infers, which is we're going to legally establish or fail to establish that Data is not property of the Federation. He's a citizen. And as a citizen is able to hold the commission he has, is able to make free choices of free will. Choices to essentially resign the commission. That's what they're trying to figure out is, does he have the capability to resign? Yeah. That's ultimately how we go into it. Correct. So... We start off with Riker. And Riker, uh, I I mean, uh, <laughs> Jonathan Frakes is just delivering on all cylinders when he yeah. performs this. Because he takes that deep breath. He's sitting next to Maddox, reminding us of that, like, he's on the wrong side and yeah. he knows it. Yep. And he starts going through it. 
And you know he's doing a good job because Picard's angry. <laughs> like, from the word go, he's, like, explaining, like, Data, what is an android? What is a robot? And, like, trying to establish this whole thing of it knows what it is kind of thing, right? Um, and then we think he, we find his kind of, like, his real head, nail on the head, which is he's like, Data, remove your arm. <laughs> and it's just this inhuman gross thing of like well he's a robot he can just remove and that. just pops it right off and Picard's too. like this you wouldn't ask a person to rip off their arm it's like well because they couldn't put it back picard <laughs> sustained <laughs> like we 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 have him come over he presents to flip the you know the end these like cybernetic components that are all mixed together to create this advanced sophisticated machine he is a machine yeah. he, by his own admission he's a machine he gives data the arm back and you know you can kind of see like it holds up still pretty well. I mean, obviously Brent Spiner is sitting in a chair where his arms are going into the into the chair. Otherwise, he couldn't remove his arm. But it, other than the fact that a courtroom has a really nice easy lounger, like it works. Yeah. And then I don't think the illusion gets really broken or anything. And then we see him kind of spin up. Picard's kind of had to bite his tongue and let Riker do his thing. And we're like, well, he, it's, it's pretty damning, but, like, nothing's really changed yet. And then we see Riker go, he's a machine, able to be, you know, he turns on and he seems human, but cut his strings and he taps the spot in the back that we saw a couple episodes earlier when we were talking about... Um, I remember what episode it was, but where, where he's talking to the doctor, he's like, well, doctor, would you tell someone if you had an off switch? And we're like, oh yeah, we're, we're playing up to the fact that we've already established that data has this switch. So he turns it off and data just flumps over. Yeah. And he's it's, like, it's really disconcerting. It's like, gross, it's, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. And, and he's just like, Pinocchio's strings have been cut. And like, you could just see like, you know, mic drop as Riker goes down, sits down. And he's like, yeah, Picard beat that. And then he kind of just like puts his hands <laughs> into his <laughs> face of like, what have I done? It's like, I did really good. I'm sorry. Yeah. And Picard's like, well, crap. I'm even convinced by that. But that's just how good the acting is here. Yeah. It really sells that feeling of dread that it's almost like they all have without yeah. truly being able to express it. So then we cut to 10 forward and he's talking to Guinan and, and, and you can see that Picard is as close as Picard gets to like, I don't know, sitting at the bar drinking. I mean, it's in the hall, so it's not real, but you know, yeah. um, he's distraught and he's obviously pretty much alone. So his great counselor Guinan comes over and Guinan's just like, like basically talking him through him. He's like, well, Guinan, he like, he convinced me. I don't know where to go with this. Like data is a robot. That's 100% true. And she's like, well, you know, every advanced species probably has a part in their time where they had a disposable workforce. It's like, huh? It's like, well, whether they be animal or lesser beings, they, uh, you know, built their empires on the back of a disposable workforce. And Picard's like, oh, my God, you're saying this is slavery. She's like, no, I'm implying it so that you conclude that it's slavery. And it's like, ah, <laughs> oh, getting... Because Guinan is so incredibly... They write her always very well as that... that um, What's the character from Star Wars? Um, the green guy. Oh, Yoda. Yeah, it's like yeah. that. You know, you've got this, this this wise character who sort of talks around Kinda the problem. Like the angel on your shoulder almost, yeah. in a way. Yeah. But, like, never gives you the answer, just yeah. leads you to yeah, you finding the answer. you in the right direction. Yeah, so it's kind of amazing to see that, and and Picard gets this kind of like 
fire in his belly of like, that's what makes this wrong is the idea of taking this unique being and making him a slave army. So we go back to the courtroom and this is sort of what Picard does. He, he first, he pulls Maddox over and he's like, I want to get, I want to get some questions with you and like is establishing what Maddox's goals are. Like, what, why do you want data? You know, what, why is this important? Why is this, and why is this relevant? And if we eventually get to Maddox is like, if we had more of them, imagine what we could do. Imagine all the science and the ingenuity and the enterprise we could do if we had, and he basically feeds Picard what Guinan told him, which is the whole, like a, he doesn't say disposable, but you know, like a tireless automaton, mm-hmm you know, working for us. Yeah, because the whole time there there are multiple instances where Picard is saying Data is one of my best officers. He time and time again has proven himself invaluable. And Maddox is basically saying, yeah, what if we had an army of those? Yeah, yeah. I mean, think about it. And and would you ask the, the ship's computer if to disobey an order? Of course not. Right. And we establish his very logical way of looking at the world. Like we see it as cruel because we like Data. But like it's easy to see his perspective but as Picard's valid. Right, it is convincing. It is, and 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 you know, and and again, not to get too much into it, but like the show Picard does a great job of showing what Maddox's future looks like. Because on Utopia Planitia, we see what that force looks like. Now, admittedly, I don't know why they're just like they they took a note from like like well, we need to have a robot workforce and they need to kind of look like data, but find someone who looks way freakier and obviously is evil. Like it's a little telegraphed in, in Picard, but we see that that lifestyle of what if we had androids doing all our horrible, dangerous work yeah. for us. So back to the present. Um, and so he gets Maddox to basically just kind of put out his, his, his scheme, if you will. And he uses that and turns that to talk about rights and he goes into the fact of data right now is a unique being and this idea that we could just copy him is pretty morally reprehensible and kind of explains why and he starts building that case that this is it is a matter of slavery you know it is the idea of condemning you know whatever data is and he starts setting things up because he he brings data over and he's he's asking data questions based on what maddox used to set up what is personhood what is sapience you know is it self-aware does it have significant knowledge and last but not least like does it have you know free will because Mm -hmm. maddox kind of jokes it off he's just like oh you're sending duh no no give give me the parameters I, i mean i don't I don't know how to define them. Well, that's what we're doing in this courtroom. So define them so I can <laughs> knock those dominoes down later. Yeah. <laughs> and he does. He basically uses Maddox's rules to get Data to talk about what he is. And yeah. then sort of like the part where we basically establish Data might not have emotions, but he is more than a machine because we are drawn back to the death of Tasha Yar and how Data ends up with this memento of Tasha Yar when she's killed. And we have Data like, having what would you call it um embarrassment he's like i i was told it would be private i can't talk about it and he talks about the fact like he was intimate with tasha i mean they were both like high at the time but the point is they you know um 
they they had that relationship. Yeah. And we see him, he's collected these momentums. And like basically, does a machine have a reason to have a memento, to remember someone in that way? And the answer is, I don't know. And that's what I love about this clincher is Picard going like, I'm not saying he is sapient, but I'm saying you can't prove he isn't, <laughs> right? He just frames it as, I don't know what he is, but I know he's more than just a piece of equipment. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how he shuts down the case. And Philippa kind of in her closing argument sort of repeats that back of, we are not establishing what is, you know, if androids are sapient, what, what about an AI makes them sapient, which comes up in Picard. Um, we are establishing this person, this person, Lieutenant Commander Data, is a Starfleet officer and entitled to all the rights pertained therein. So we don't really settle the law on AI or androids, but we establish that data is out from under this, that this court will not condemn him to this procedure if he doesn't want it. Right. And even Maddox is like broken and he's like, yeah, I don't know what he is either. And they're like, Oh, he, you have referred to him as a, th you didn't refer to him as a thing. And he's like, yeah, I, I withdraw my order. And, and Data's like, oh, then I don't have to resign. And Picard's like, good, you can be back on the Enterprise. You're late. Um, <laughs> and we see that all shut down. And then Philippia, who's been hot to trot to get in Picard's pants again, um, kind of just comes up like, how about that date? And Picard's like, well, in the midsection of this episode, I freaking hated you. But I mean, you're reasonable. So, I mean, we can have a date. <laughs> um. And again, also, again, establishes, I mean, we'll get we'll get more to that as Picard has yeah. more paramours as we go forward. But like establishing Picard is he's not Riker. He's not plowing anything that's around. But <laughs> Picard is a active man, you know, and he he ends up going on that date and we just get that positive feeling. Oh, and last thing, I forgot about the trial. Like I forgot to mention. And unlike a lot of the times when the teaser at the beginning, like in this case, the poker game comes up where he's explaining yeah. to Maddox that like there's more nuance to things than what the obvious stated academic facts would have you believe. Yeah. Poker is a very simple game. Nowhere in the rules of poker does it talk about bluffing that you can quote unquote cheat. And because of that, if you just read the rules, you don't know what poker is. Same thing. If you look at data on paper and Maddox sees that firsthand, he sees this person that is data. And even he's kind of convinced of like, I don't think I'm wrong about my ideas of what I want for a future of the Federation, as you'll see in Picard, but I have a new understanding and appreciation for what's going on. And then in maybe the most Star Trek, the next generation, the future is a hopeful place. Like data's like, well, your work is very intriguing. Please keep sending your papers and I will try to give you schematics about me to help further your research. Like, no adversarial things at all. Like Maddox, I want to help you because you're a smart guy and you're doing good work. Yeah. It's great. You don't get that in other franchises. No, you right? don't. You like don't. you watch like the Marvel movies and all the villains die. You know, yeah. you watch Star Star Wars and it's like black hats, white hats. There's no nuance to it. You know, it's Star Trek is all about that. Yeah, it is. I, You know, the thing that I love about this episode is ultimately even when people are acting against the interest of the side you're on, it becomes a positive thing. It comes to a positive light. And that's exactly what you're saying. 
but it yeah. also helps set a precedent for AI in this universe. That's the other right. thing that they talk about a little bit there at the end is by having this trial and by ruling in data's favor, they're saying that going forward, this same ruling would apply. Oh yeah. And, and you see, you see that evolve and how this constantly gets fight. Cause we see this, especially in later episodes of Voyager, there's the hologram, the doctor, the image and like how, Back home, they're starting to use EMHs as workers in mines where there's no air or anything like that. Yeah. Like there's they're starting to bend that, which, again, sets up for a card where we had androids. They went bad and we banned them all across the universe. And it has done a, a, a terrible damage to the Federation's character. Mm -hmm. And it's why Picard leaves. And he wants like basically nothing to do with the Federation. He, you know, it's very, very oddly the Federation. The Federation lost left me kind of thing. And it's it's really it's really, really well done, um, you know, because that's what Star Trek is all about. It's about a hopeful vision of the future. It's yes, there are problems. Yes, there are things that we have to work through. But we as a collective are going to make the future better unless you're watching Discovery. Discovery's not that. <laughs> but again, we already know if you've been listening to this show, Mac has major problems with Discovery. and We don't have to get into that. Yeah, no uh, need to revisit that today. Maybe next week we'll get into that a yeah, little more. So uh, this is a great app. Uh so you using our pip scale one to four, how many pips would you give this? So let us know on social media. Yeah, we, we want to hear your your facts too. You can check out on the website. We have all of all the listings up to now. Yeah. Again, we're only in season two, but we've had we've had some bangers. Yeah, we've had fun. some duds. It's been fun. Yeah, the, yeah. Well, Mac, I had a great time today talking about this episode. Oh no, no, what's, what's your rating though? I want to hear you your. You want to know my rating? I, I want to know your oh, rating. Oh boy. Well, I mean, I think this was a solid three out of four. Three out of four? I think so. I I think I agree with your IMDb thing. I think this is one of the best episodes ever. I mean, it's not the inner light. That's like a five on our four-point scale. Like, this to me would be... I think this is a four. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I love Data. I mean, it's not surprising. Yeah. Lots of people love Data. But, like, it is such a great moment for him. Uh -huh. It has echoes throughout the whole series. I th It's a four I, for I, me. You're absolutely right. It is... I, I, you're right. Maybe it is a four. Let me think on it. I'll get back to you next week. Okay. All right. Well, All right. Oh, this is a really fun one. So in yeah. the next one, uh, I'm going to get a little loose with technical data. We're going to talk about sovereign class ships, Ooh. the Enterprise E and its sister ships. So we're excited to talk about that right after this. So we are bringing in another. <sighs> uh, let's be on a hot Star Wars all in yeah, here because we this got we, crazy. I, you know, we have been in this room entirely too long. <laughs> oh my god, I need to eat something. We we should have eaten like five hours ago. <laughs> but it's been fun. You know, we yeah. covered. We have covered the most we've ever covered. Oh, I, I am man. afraid to see what this looks Who like after edit. Luke had so many lines in the original trilogy. We yeah, we might have bit off a little more. Well, you know. I would say we bit off more way too, but we we pretty much hit everything. It was smart that we skipped the deleted scene stuff. Yeah, because I mean, once you get into like Cammy and his fixer, and it, it would have yeah, been too much. Yeah, so maybe next time. Yeah, maybe, I mean, we'll pick that up in another topic. Yeah, for you know, sure, for sure. This isn't the last time we're going to go through a character in every line they've ever delivered. Oh, I mean, for sure, for this sure. This was fun. Yeah. Uh, is there anything that we think we've got? No, I mean, I I oh, think uh, you know oh, what you I, I didn't want to I, I didn't want to say one thing. So oh oh yeah yeah. Uh, 
So when I gave the star star dreadnought, I'm talking about the executor. That's the only facts we have. That's the only one that like, the DK novels have published stuff about. That's the only one the technical novels. There are other star dreadnoughts. It's not just the executor, but like other than the eclipse, we don't have any numbers. So I'm sure someone can find the numbers. I'm sorry if I yeah, got it wrong, yeah, but yeah, like, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. it's, it's a lot to close handle. enough. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you, know, you we, get the idea. When for you sure. go through like 30 to 40 ships, you're not going to get every detail perfectly right. Yeah. yeah, that's true. But I think you did a pretty stand up job. And maybe I'll catch that when we come back because we didn't get through everything I wanted to get through, no. even in the well, Empire. We still, and we still got the Rebellion together. Yeah, I know. We got Separatist warships, which is what I'm looking forward oh, to. We, we got the First land. Order and the Final Order. Those yeah, will be we, a couple of episodes. So th- it'll there's be good. a bunch more of this. Yeah. This is a topic we'll repeat for sure. I, I think so. I think so. Well, Mac, I had a lot of fun. I did too. I mean, as as much as I want to get out of this room, I had a lot of fun recording all of this. So, um, yeah, if there's nothing else to say, let's just wrap this up. I Stay mean, it home. okay, well, I'm Mac. And I'm Ross. And until next Wednesday, happy April Fools, everyone. This production is not endorsed by any other property and is the sole responsibility of Mac Purvis III, Ross Greco, and those involved in its production. It is meant for entertainment purposes only. Other than content provided by this production's providers, all music, music clips, sound bites, rights are reserved, and their respective owners have not endorsed any aspect of this show. Copyright 2020.